0: I want to remind you of a couple announcements we had on the video. One, if you are interested in becoming a member, February 25, we start our membership process uh, with our discovery class. You can sign up for that on the website. Second, next Sunday, you don't want to miss this, During the 10 o'clock children's Sunday school and adult Sunday school hour from 10 to 10.50, uh, we will not be having adult Sunday school, but we will meet in here for an informational meeting to share with you about the plans to expand our sanctuary and other aspects of our property here to increase our ministry. And so you want to be a part of that to find out what's going on there. All right, Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our work steadily moving through Acts Paul has now started what is known as his third missionary journey. As we've skipped a little bit, he has gone back to Antioch and now has moved back out. And we find now that Paul ends up in Ephesus, is where we pick up in chapter 19, where a place where he will have one of his most, um, at least from humanly's perspective, one of his most successful ministries, where he spends some of the um, the most amount of time of his uh, ministry years. And it has a great connection with the Ephesian church that is established there. Um, and so a little bit about Ephesians before we actually get to reading about it this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 8. But the, the, the city of Ephesus is under the authority of a god named Artemis. Or in Roman language, Diana is the, what uh, the Romans called this god. She was the fertility goddess. Uh, in fact, uh, she was referred to not not just in regards to her that what they believe was her ability to help you uh, procreate, but also in regards to fertility was also she was the one who was overseas whether you were going to be prosperous, that your land would be fertile, that your cattle would be fertile, that you would be able to make money. So she was the protector of the city and the prosperity of the city, and she was the one who guaranteed their prosperity. So they would sacrifice to this goddess in the hopes that she would give them Uh, wealth, and children. Ephesus was known as being, she was well-known. This is maybe one of the most famous gods of the ancient times, uh, Artemis or Diana. And she had the world's largest temple there in Ephesus. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Rome. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so large and so grand and so beautiful. And then comes Paul with the gospel and there is a collision. And that is what I want to look at this morning. As we work through this text, we're not going to read it all at the beginning. We're going to work through it in chunks together. But what I want to discuss this morning, and is a theme that I think we see throughout the Bible, and that is this, is that God is constantly entering the territory and the places where idols reign, and he is putting to death their reign. You know, the story of Genesis is written to be a a, a, a the story of the way, the fact that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, the true God that, they, that Israel serves is greater than all other idols, all other gods. The whole account of Exodus early on there where uh, God goes to war against Pharaoh is not just a war against Pharaoh, but actually when he releases the people of Israel, those nine plagues all have to do and relate to Egyptian gods, that God is directly going after the idol's of Egypt. And that is what we see here, that God is coming after the idols, the worship of the gods of the people of Ephesus. You see, you might think, or tend to think, as we think about idols, is that like little kids, like something physical. And that may have been true a couple thousand years ago, but idols our, are the way in which we worship idols. It has morphed. It has begun from something that is, they're physical to something that is a little bit less conscious, but no less so. You just think about it. The god Artemis she promised at least two wonderful things. And think about if this sounds familiar, the, the, the world of Ephesus. In Ephesus, they love three things sex, money, and sports. Does that sound familiar to you? In fact, Ephesus was known, it actually had a Colosseum, a uh, sporting arena that sat 25,000 people that still stands today in Ephesus. This is what they were known for, and this is actually what the the god Artemis promised for them, was this fertility, was this this cultic worship for her was very sensual, the economic prosperity that she brought. This is what they worshiped. This is what they loved. And what God is doing is coming, and he is, this is a clash of titans. This is a clash of gods. Big god versus little gods. Little g-gods. And that is the same thing. What I want you to see today is this is what God is after with us. He is after invading your life and after invading this city and and displacing the role of idols and of smaller and lesser gods in your life. And so we pick up in verse 8. Read along with me as I read out loud. If you have a Bible. Uh, that's great. If It'll also be on the screen for you. Pick it up in verse 8. We'll, we'll read through verse 20 in this first section. And he entered, this is Paul, the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what people called uh, the Christians at that time, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Then it gets really crazy. Verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So the even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. Commentators estimate that could be around $30 million worth of, of gold or books. And then verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. How I want to walk through this text this morning is I want you to see that God is coming to make war against the idols. And what we see in verses 8 through 20 is your first point, which is the invasion. That God comes to invade the territory of the god Artemis. The invasion of, and what I want you to see here is the invasion of idol territory is primarily done through what? The words, through the words. Now, what gets the big time pub in Ephesus is the fact that uh, these guys got beat up and that Paul is like casting out demons and healing people. And that's cool and all. But at least three times it is mentioned here in, this fo- in the focus of this text is that what Paul was doing is he is reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God, about the gospel. In verse 10 it says they heard the word of the Lord, and then it ends the section was with verse 20 as a summary saying the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. It won mightily. The word of the Lord is what increases. There were miracles, yes, and that's cool whenever there's miracles. But primarily the means by which God invades enemy territory is through his word. In fact, later on when Demetrius stands up and he's railing against apostle, the apostle Paul and the, message, and the message that he brings is he says he, he's not upset about the miracles. He's upset about the message, that it was the message that Paul brought that caused people to turn away from their idols. And so the question for us is do we believe that the word of God still could do that kind of work? Or are we trying to get cute with our ministry? See, very often we we read passages like this and we see the miracles and we get all excited. And yes, miracles are really cool. But the means by which God moves is through the simple work of his word. The reading it to your children, the reading it in our churches, the engagement of the word with your friends and your family. Here is Paul. He is facing the temple of the god Artemis. And Paul's genius method is, I'm gonna teach him from the word of God. That's the genius method. Don't underestimate the significance of this, of a group of people getting together and opening the Word of God together and reading it and trying to understand it and explaining it to one another. There is power in that. God still changes human beings. He changes lives. He changes cities, and He changes nations. There is historical evidence over and over and over again. It is the simple work of the Word of God. Now, the second thing I want you to see, though, is that God also at times will use extraordinary displays of power. Do you see this verse 11? Paul's hanky is healing people. His apron. His apron. Now moms, those of you that like to cook, you men who are out there like you you're out grilling, you throw your, your 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 grill apron on something and somebody's suddenly healed. That'd be be that's cool. That's really awesome to be able to do that. I want you to see a couple things about this that that, that are important to see because we can we can get We can get a little bit crazy about about these miracles. I want to see a couple things. First is this, is we have to have a biblically balanced view about miracles. We have to have a biblically balanced view about miracles, about power works that we see God doing. There's a principle here, and that's this, that God usually works normatively through natural means, but he will use his power displays situationally. What is God doing here? God, in certain settings and for his own purposes, what we see here, chooses to condescend to the people to whom he is seeking to reach, to communicate to them in a way that will be attractive, that will attract them to the gospel, that will win for them a hearing of the gospel. Now, think about this. The people of Ephesus, what we're going to see is they're going to throw away essentially cultic books, magic books. That's what it's going to be that are so valuable that they use to kind of use in their incantations to try to win the, 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 the blessing of Artemis or Diana. So what we see is a city that is caught up in the occult, a city that is caught up in magic, a city that's caught up in incantations. And so God in his mercy is willing, in this case, for some reason, to bow to that necessity, to that need, to condescend to that need, to show them, oh yeah, you think it's cool that you can do miracles? Let me show you some miracles. This is what Moses does in, 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 in Exodus, that God works miracles through him to try to win a hearing. You know, God is doing this. God is using miraculous means to communicate himself. You know, Muslim missionaries will talk about this a good bit, because in the Muslim Quran, it actually talks about that you'll be convinced about who the true God is, because he'll come to you in a dream. And so you know what Muslim missionaries will pray for? Is that God will show up to them and reveal Jesus, the true God, to them in a dream. And you know what's happening. It's happening. Muslims all over the Middle East are having dreams, and they're coming to people who've been seeking to share their faith, their faith with them, and they've not been open to it until suddenly Jesus comes to them in a dream, because God is condescending to the needs that they have in order to help them to listen and to hear the word of God. God does do that. But we should also see this, that God is not giving a miracle a minute. Miracles are miracles. You know, miracles are God's suspension of the natural world to do something special, nor, we should not think that we should not demand miracles from God. Paul doesn't appear to have any concern whether there's miracles or not. Hey, he's just got, what, Paul's like, I'm just, I'm just doing my thing, showing up at Tyrannus' Hall and we're preaching the gospel and people are suddenly getting healed. He's carrying on with what he's doing, but we should not think that God is not working when we don't see miracles. That's a mistake people make when they read Acts. The greatest miracle, understand this, is the new birth. Think about this. One of the coolest miracles God ever did that Jesus did in his lifetime was to heal Lazarus. You know what? Lazarus died again. And so, listen, you can heal people. That's all cool if you can heal people from death, if you can raise them from death. But if they're gonna die again, then it doesn't matter a whole lot, does it? But if you could be raised to new life spiritually where you're gonna live for all of eternity, now that's the greatest miracle. And God is doing that. Is that. That's primarily what God is doing. But here's the principle I want you to see about miracles. God can and does use miracles suspending or surpassing the use of the natural order in order to accomplish his will. But God most often is working through the natural order of things. We we can pray, brothers and sisters, you should pray for, when, when, when a brother or sister has cancer, when someone you know has cancer, you should pray for God to heal them. You can pray for miracles. And God does do that. But you know how God most often heals people with cancer? Through doctors and medicine. God moving Through the means of the natural worlds, this is how God primarily works. We must not be secularists who deny God's authority over the natural world and God's right to invade the natural world and suspend it at times. But neither must be be super spiritualists who only ever see God work in the midst of miracles. We believe in a providential, sovereign God who is working through natural means. He is ordering the world in such a way that He brings about His purposes, so that that He doesn't actually He doesn't have to do miracles that often. He doesn't need to. The second thing I want you to see about this from this text is, so not only do we have to have a balanced view about miracles, but also you should beware of those who come wielding the, claiming to wield the power of God like Paul is able to wield it here. In fact, it's not so much that Paul is the one who is wielding the power of God, right? Paul is utterly passive here. There is no sign that says that Paul is going around, that Paul has, has taken his shirts, right, that he wears every day, and he's selling them in the market. Paul has not gone, oh, look, my shirts are healing people, and my aprons are healing people, so now suddenly he's got, like, a hanky ministry going on in his church, right? We must be careful in this, but the reality of this, and the only reason why I have to speak to this, is you'd think we wouldn't need this, but if you go watch TBN or CBN, whatever, this, the, the Christian Broadcasting Network This is exactly what you see. Hey, if you call this number and pay $99 for this prayer cloth, and you pray with this on your head or in your hands, what will happen? You'll get, God will answer your prayers. Here's some Kabbalah robber that a rabbi has pulled from the Jordan River, and he has prayed over, and if you will drink this water, then you'll live, you'll be healthy, and you'll be well. They're called religious hucksters. Who are seeking to manipulate and use the name of Jesus, and that is exactly what's going on here. The sons of Skiva, uh, Alistair Begg calls them the, uh, the the sons of he calls the sons of Skiva the Seven Streakers of Skiva, which I think is quite appropriate because you see what happens here. What God is going to do with those who seek to wield the power of God in the name of Jesus in an inappropriate manner and without being living under the submission and the authority of God's word is God is going to expose them. And what we see here is literally He exposes them. Not just figuratively, but literally. These are itinerant Jewish exorcists. All seven sons of Sceva. Itinerant Jewish. Can you imagine that if you're their mother? What are your boys up to? Well, it's same old, same old. They're itinerant Jewish exorcists, but they're Italian. I know, that's what I keep telling them. It's very confusing. It's very difficult. If some of you really enjoy Matt Chandler, on, and, and I, he has one of the greatest lines I think I've ever heard on this account, when he says this, that if you want to know if you've, if you've won or lost a fight, If you began the fight with pants on, but you end the fight with no pants on, then you lost. (laughs) You lost. Listen, there are people in this world, people people get frustrated if pastors preach too much against those who are on TV. And I understand we should be fair, and we should be generous, and we should be gracious. But they also should be exposed. They should be caught literally with their pants down, theologically. Theologically. And they should be called out for what they are as religious hucksters who are trying to use the name of God in an inappropriate way for their own glory and their own benefit. And that's exactly what these men are doing. And there's men who are still doing it today. But the main point is this, and that is this, is that God is invading. And what I want you to see in this text is when God invade, it has, invades the territory of idols, it has great effects on people's lives. What happens at the end here? That religious hucksters get exposed. People are amazed by the power works that Paul, that God is doing through power, and they hear the word of God and they're convinced, and what happens to their lives? They are radically transformed. That these people whose lives center around the worship of the God Artemis, their lives center around these books, these magic incantations, this is what they're, they're, the liturgy of their life is. And what we see is they take this thing that is the core of their life and they build a huge fire and they throw their stuff into it. What is that? They burn the books. They're making a clean break from their idolatrous past. They're putting it aside utterly. This is a picture of what God does when he gets a hold of someone's life. When God invades your life, there is a radical transition. It flips your life upside down. And he demands to be the only God in your life. And When someone begins to to follow Jesus, this is what you ought to be seeing in their life in some way, shape, or form. That the idols of their life are cast out. That they burn the books of their immorality, that they burn the books of their social habits, that they burn the books of their moral and relational sins. And they say, I'm done with these things because I want to serve the true God. So I ask you, have you burned the books? And what, what would you burn? You probably can't literally burn the things that are idols in your life. You would go to jail, or you'd get fired. But how, what would it look like to burn the books in your life? To show God, man, my goodness, this, your, your, my life is yours. So what we see is God invades. God invades and it has a great effect. He is disrupting the city of Ephesus. Now what we see in these verses is the idols push themselves to respond to this invasion. If you invade enemy territory, they have a tendency to react. And that's exactly what we see picking up in verse 23. It's kind of like the idols are like Bugs Bunny. You remember Bugs Bunny when Elmer Fudd would come after him? And it's like the idols are sitting there chewing on a carrot, and they're going, you know, of course, this means war. And we picked up in verse 23, because that's what's going on here. About this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Again, that's the Christians. That's what they're called. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know this business. In this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in also almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, the gods made with hands are not gods. You would think that would be kind of like he'd hear himself and go, duh, but no. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Sounds like our riots these days. Some of the crowd promised Alexander, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right, so the first thing we see in this text is that God has invaded. The second thing is, the battle begins. We see the battle. And here we see a comparison between the idols and the true gods. Demetrius stands up and gives us a great picture of what it is to follow an idol. He tells us about the nature of idols in this kind of speech of his before the great crowds. I want to compare that, compare what he says about idols and what he reveals about our, about the idols of this world to the true God. The first thing I want you to see that he says here is that idols are anything that promises the good life without the true gods or apart from gods. That's what Artemis did, right? The god of the city of Ephesus, what did she promise? To be the protector, to help them be prosperous. Prosperous. With her, they believed they were guaranteed security and joy. She guaranteed to them the good life, the life that they longed to have, the children in their brood, the money that they needed, success. Idols are the things that promise you what you most want. They say, you want that? I can get it for you. Or they become the thing you most want. What is it in your life? What is in your life? You ask yourself this question, if I have that, if I have blank, then my life is good that I have the good life. What is that for you? Happy children, success, beauty, money, respect. What is it for you? Idols are not usually bad things. They are good things that have become God things. It may be marriage, it may be relationships. If marriage is that thing that you believe the good life only begins when you've met that one person, And then you'll put this pressure on your marriage that your marriage has to be a certain way. The message of idols is this. If you have this, you're happy. If you have this, you've got the good life. And the flip side of it is this. If you don't have this, your life is terrible. Your life is over. If you lose a good thing, you know, there's a difference. You can see it almost emotionally. We're gonna look at the emotions in just a second. But if you lose a good thing in your life, something that you value, but it's not not an ultimate thing, when it is taken away, you're sad. You're like, you're disappointed. When God takes away, perhaps, an ultimate thing, when an idol is actually removed from your life, you're utterly crushed. You're destroyed. You're in despair. That's what idols, idols promise life apart from God. They promise the good life. What is the true God? Let's compare this to the true God. The true God alone is actually the one who already has given you life who has given you life. The true God promises, and I think this is so different than the idols, the true God not only promises what you want, promises to provide you what you most want, but he does so by becoming what you most want. The true God promises you what you most want by becoming what you most want. The delight of your heart becomes God himself. Here's a God, Paul says, not made with human hands. It's almost it's ridiculous that we serve idols, the idols of this world, sex and money, and power, and, and and acceptance. These are the things that we serve. And yet God has given us all these things. And we create these idols, we create these worlds, we serve these gods, and yet they are of our own making so many times. And yet we see compared to God they are nothing. I heard one pastor say this he says, His God's love is more faithful, it is more tender, more fulfilling than romance. His promises are more secure and more reliable than money. His presence is more life-sustaining than creature comforts, His future more fulfilling than a fertile family, His attention and affections better than the praise of people. God is better than the idols of this world. Jeremiah 2:13. Paul is actually an indictment since a prophet to indict his people. And he indicts them because they have sought for lesser things for their joy. It says this, For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have huge cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Your idols can hold no water. Let me put it this way, why your idols can't hold any water. Let's say, let's say marriage, the perfect marriage. That's your idol. If I have that, my life is good. Listen, if your spouse then will become the, the means by which you have the perfect marriage, if they mess up, what does that mean how you're gonna react? You're screwing with my whole life here. You're screwing with the core of my existence. And know what? Nobody can handle that pressure. Because if you look at me and you say, my happiness, my joy relies on you, know what it's gonna make me wanna do? I'm gonna to wanna to run for the hills. Either that or I'm gonna try and try and try and I'm never gonna be able to make you happy. And then it's going to crush me, and I'm going to be useless to you. Listen, your spouse, the idols of this world, whatever it may be, they, are, they have holes. The water just runs out of them. And yet what we do, what we've done is we've forsaken the God who said, I have no holes. I offer everything perfectly for you. I offer acceptance and perfect, per- I offer acceptance and significance and purpose. Understand this, the true God is better than idols. And in fact, all your other all idols know what they are? They're merely poor copies of the true God. They only offer lesser things, lesser imitations. For example, sex. You know who came up with sex? It wasn't the 1960s that came up with sex. Newsflash God created sex for your pleasure and for his glory. We have to actually speak positively about it. It is a good thing. God says, I gave you sex. The idol says, You know what? God doesn't really actually want to give you that pleasure. So you just have it any way you want. God says, I've given you sex for a particular place, for a particular purpose. And the idol say, you know, you just, you just have it wherever you want. whenever In every way you want it, you know, you actually take the power out of it. You take the enjoyment out of it. You take the pleasure out of it when you, do, when you misuse it, as an idol would. Work. God gave you work as part of your purpose, as a loved image bearer, not to win acceptance, but as the joy of working in the presence of God. And yet the idol of, your, of work says, you know what? If you want to be accepted, you have to do all this. You have to go, 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 go. Because it'll get you what you really want. It'll give you the happy life. The second thing we we see here about the nature of idols articulated through Demetrius is this, is idols need to be protected I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that are rising up and chanting and screaming and yelling. Why do they need to be protected? It's so ironic. The God of Artemis, this is a cruel irony. Uh, irony. The God of Artemis is known to be the protector of the city of Ephesus. And yet, who's protecting whom here? These people have to rise up and protect their God. And what we see here is that if you, you, one of the ways you can know you have an idol is what makes you most angry when it's threatened. As you can see from the story, when you threaten people's idols, they get violent in a hurry. What makes you the angriest? What has them, if it's threatened, what is, if it's taken, if you don't have it, if you don't get it, what makes you the most depressed? What makes you the most stressed and anxious? Your emotions are telling you something about something that is going on inside your heart. You need to listen to those things, not because they're ultimately true, but they're 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 lights on the dashboard that are flashing and saying, something is wrong here. That if you're that angry, Tim Keller tells a story about two women, two moms that he was counseling one day at the same time. And both of them were very angry at their husbands. One of them, in fact, one of them, but he 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 said it was quite odd. One of them, it it was clear, both of them hadn't been very good fathers. And they were very angry about the role that these husbands had played in the raising of children. And yet he said the woman who actually had lesser, her husband had actually sought to be more faithful. He was more involved in the family. He had actually been a better man than the the other wife's husband. But the one who had the better husband was actually the more angry. And what he realized was this, is that her idol was her children. And so because her idol was her children... And because her husband hadn't performed in the way she needed him to in order to support her in the raising of her children, she hated him for it, despite that he had given his best efforts. What do you feel obsessive about to protect in your life? And then you need to ask yourself, why in the world am I having to protect this so much? I thought money was supposed to protect me, and yet I'm not able to spend it because I'm so afraid it's going to run out. Why is that? If it's your reputation... You always have to protect your reputation. You can't ever be criticized. You get really angry when people criticize you. You can't ever let anybody know anything that's wrong in your life because your reputation is ultimate. And if someone ever exposed anything about your life, oh my goodness, that's the end of your world. Why do you have to protect your God? The true God doesn't need you to protect him. The true God is better than that. The true God protects you. Remember, We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Paul in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25 said this. That the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the true God. He doesn't need you to protect him. He is here to protect you. If the true God is your God, nothing can touch him. If what you want most is God Himself, guess what? Ain't nothing gonna defeat Him. He's already gone into death and He's defeated death. If death can't touch Him, what can? He has defeated all the principalities in this world. He has won the victory. He protects you, you don't protect Him. You know, I've always sensed this is one of the things that is distressing in which, in our evangelical world, in which we quit so riled up about trying to. There's a difference between defending the faith and defending God. God can defend Himself. You know, when you try to defend God, you know what happens? Vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. You know, there's another religion that we're becoming to look more and more alike in America, and that's Muslims. If you draw an inappropriate picture of Muhammad, what happens? The entire Middle East rises up. Why? Small, insecure God that they feel they have to protect. Because he doesn't protect them. They have to protect him. He doesn't protect them. Third, I want you to see from Demetrius' speech here, lastly, is that idols demand that we sacrifice for them. The whole system of Ephesus was built around appeasing Artemis. Everything, their whole life, was built about winning Artemis' blessings, making sure she was not displeased. Idols are like that. Idols say this if you want me, you have to sacrifice to get me. If you want me to give you blessings, then you have to sacrifice to get my blessings. What and so here's the question what are you sacrificing to get your idol? What are you sacrificing to get your idol? For example, many men, they don't necessarily go into business thinking that they're going to cheat and lie and steal. But if success, if success is their idol, what they might find themselves doing 10, 15 years in, is they will stab anybody in the back in order to be successful. They'll lie. They'll waste their integrity in order to get the money that they want. If you, if you long to be married, if relationships is the key, then you'd be willing to compromise your morality, the things that God has called you to, in order to keep that relationship happy. That you're willing to fudge on the principles of what you're looking for in a man or a woman and kind of move away from the call of God in your life as to what you should be looking for in a, in a, in a spouse. And say, you know what? Oh, he's not, he's, I don't know if he's a believer. He goes to church with me. That's enough for me. Listen, don't, listen, you're, you're gonna fudge your principles to serve your idol? What are you giving up? What are you giving up in order to serve, to sacrifice for your idols? You know, we have a lot of people who worship the ideal, the idol of an ideal family. And you know why? You know what happens? What are they giving up in order to do that? They're giving up opportunities to do ministry because ministry is hard and ministry is messy and ministry means their kids are gonna be tired and ministry means that mom and dad may not be there every single night or every single morning. Ministry is difficult. Ministry might mean that you bring a child in your home that messes up the family dynamic. So if you have the vision of a perfect family, the ideal family, listen, you won't entertain the idea of missions. Missions is too hard. It's not pretty enough for you. When you sacrifice the idol, here's the thing, though, it demands more and more of you. There's a commentator named William James, and I won't say exactly how he phrases it. He says this, success, he's talking about uh, idols, uh, success is an idol. He says this, success is a nagging goddess. That's not the word he used, that's the word I'm going to use. It's a nagging goddess. She constantly wants more and more and more. She wants your family. She wants your health. She wants your integrity. How many of you are serving at the feet of the God of success? Ancient gods require child sacrifice. And we think, oh, that's awful. That's disgusting. Oh, to serve people who would sacrifice your children. And yet we do the same thing. When we say, listen, I have to work all weekends, I have to work all the nights, and I have to, we sacrifice pleasure. Somebody else can watch my kids. I'm going to get a babysitter three or four nights a week because I've got to get away from these children. Sacrificing what we want, we sacrifice our children at the altar of what we desire. Some of you have made ministry, in fact, to even push back where I was just a minute ago. And you're not ministering for your children, your family, because being successful in the eyes of people around you is more important. You know, revivals are strewn with the stories of men who are very successful in ministry, and the wake, the collateral damage in their life is their children. But look at the story of Dwight L. Moody. His kids hated him. A.W. Tozer, the same thing. The true God, the true God, though, idols say you have to sacrifice for me. The true God, though, says I sacrifice for you. Money and success say if you don't do enough to obtain me, then you miss out on me and I'll make your life miserable. Jesus says to us, you failed me. You ran from me. And I cursed myself for you. I sacrifice to make you mine. Other gods say, if you fail me, I'll destroy you. Jesus said, you failed me, and in love I came to save you. He sacrifices to make you his. That brings us to the third point this morning, which I want to look at the the victory, how God defeated the idols. We're going to be brief on this and get us to the table. Paul, what do we see here? Paul wants to dive into the crowd, and yet they've already kind of already beaten up two of his friends, and so a bunch of his friends are saying, Paul, don't go in there. You see the God, the idols, the powerful idols of Ephesus are, are flexing their muscles through the riots, and the powers and the principalities at large there are going to destroy Paul, are going to rip his himself him from limb to limb, and so Paul didn't enter into the theater, but there was one who did. Right? What does Colossians two say? Is that Jesus entered in, and he was it says that when Jesus is crucified, what happens? It was a crowd that was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, to serve their idols. And the powers and principalities that were to be in Jerusalem put him to death. And yet, in Colossians 2, verse 15, it says this, that Jesus, through the cross, he disarmed the powers and principalities, he made a public spectacle of them on the cross, triumphing over them. That means this, that the means by which idols are defeated is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's how he did it. It's an amazing thing. You know, Jewish scholars will look at the, at, at the story of the Bible, and they're very confused. They don't, they don't hold to the New Testament. Because they look, you know, one of the laws that you'd have in the Old Testament is if you committed adultery, you didn't just get a divorce. What happens to a person in Old Testament laws who committed adultery? They were stoned to death. And what we see is God in the Old Testament, he articulates his relationship with Israel and regards to this issue as idolatry, as that it's a spiritual adultery. That when Israel would run after other gods and serve, other, uh, serve idols, that God would say, you have run from me. This is what the whole story of Hosea is. is Israel, you have run from me, your husband, your spiritual husband, you have cheated on me, you have committed adultery on me. Therefore, what do the people of Israel deserve? Death. And yet what we see in Hosea, and actually in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well, is that when God comes and he says to them, I'm going to divorce you. I'm gonna separate myself from you, but one day I'm gonna win you back and we will be married once again. And Old Testament scholars go, is God God inconsistent? He says the law means if you committed adultery, you should get death. And yet here we say, no, I'm gonna win you back to myself. He says, I'm gonna win you back to myself. There's a tension there in the Old Testament, but that tension is cut by the New Testament in which God says, yes, there is death. Someone has to die for your adultery. And yet his desire so much is that he would bring you back to himself. Is that he came and he bore the cost of your idolatry. And he defeated all the other idols that you served. He ran off your lovers in order to win you back to himself. He said, listen, either you die or I die. Somebody's dying for this idolatry. I will die. I will die. So that I might have you. So that in putting an end to the idolatry in your life, I don't have to put an end to you so that I might have relationship with you. And what we see is that Jesus, the gospel, one, He is a greater God than all the other idols. All the lesser gods of this world, the gospel one. We see individually in this text, right? People's lives are radically changed. We see it socially. What happens here? The whole economic system is flipped upside down. The gospel won. The gospel will win. And guess what? The gospel won historically as well. Within 200 years, this city of Ephesus, the place that is known more than any other place for its idol worship in the whole ancient world, there is no sign of physical idol worship. It is gone. Now, that idol worship shifted. It went underground. But we see the radically changed Ephesus. The church wins as the gospel wins. God is a better God than your idols. He's so much better. He's won you for himself. Would you come and enjoy him? Come back to the table? If you've been, I would imagine, if you've ever cheated on somebody, one of the most difficult situations I would think there would be as as you're restored is to come and eat with your spouse. And yet that's exactly what God gives us in the table, is I have won the right for you to come sit with me once again, the sign of intimate fellowship in the ancient Near East was to eat together. And God invites you, his adulterous, idolatrous wife, to come join him. Let's pray and let's go to the table together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we have time and time again run after other gods, when we have served the things of this world, that you have pursued us. You came to put a death to our idols that you do that here this morning, that you would crush our idols, crush our idolatry, and reveal yourself to be greater than all the idols of this world, all the promises of this world. God, we come and we set aside this table. It is a special place, it is the, sp- this, the space and the place of restoration for idolaters, for those who have run away from our spouse. This is the place where we come time and time again to seek your forgiveness and to experience your love and your affection for us, to be restored to intimacy with you. And so, God, we take this bread, the simple bread and the simple juice as we come to remember what it costs to bring us home, what it costs for us to come and eat with you and dine with you, to be restored into marital relationship with you, that it costs your body and your blood shed for us. We set aside these things. I pray that your grace would be poured out to us. That those this morning who are struggling, who are running after other gods, that they would be convinced to turn and come back by the grace of God. That they would see that you're better. That you're better. That you're better. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.